0: All right, good morning, it's good to see all you guys. If you will turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter one, verse 31. Genesis one, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, we just were able to um, look at our. Question four from this past week, now let's look at question five that we're going to be considering together this week. It goes like this, what else did God create? And then all together with great life and verve, we will say, God created all things by his powerful word, and all his creation was very good. Everything flourished under his loving rule. Okay, Uh, for the people who measure these kinds of things, they tell me that If you took our moon and put it inside the sun, you could actually fit 64.3 million of our moons inside the sun. And yet, what's amazing to me is that if if everything lines up just right, something that small, a speck of dust in comparison with something so large, can eclipse the sun. Isn't that amazing? Like, how, How close would you have to a piece of dust to your eye to eclipse any one of us in here. That would be a remarkable thing, and yet yet this is the reality. Now on November 24th, 1859, Charles Darwin published his famous book On the Origin of Species, and I'm guessing that for many of us in this room, when we think of the doctrine of creation, we immediately think of how it relates to Darwin, and we, we, we tend to see the doctrine of creation as something that is like, sort of like a weapon that we need to bat off the encroaching secularism in the darkness. Um, but what I would like to suggest today is that the doctrine of creation is much larger than that. It is much more robust and lively and energetic than just as a weapon to knock on some Darwinians. Now, those questions are good, and Those are questions of our age, and we must bring them to the scriptures. That's absolutely right. But I would say that's a moon that has come so close to us, it's so close in our vision that it's eclipsed the whole doctrine of creation. And so my goal today is to just try to help us look around the moon and see the vast goodness and brightness and glory of the doctrine of creation, Okay, now my goal <clears throat> today is to show you not just a heady doctrine of creation, but to show that this doctrine actually informs how we live and how we love and how we work. Th- I'm not concerned that it's, that it's um, how, how do I say this without getting in trouble? <laughs> um, I, I would say I'm not as concerned to prove that it's true, I'm guessing most of us in here, most of us at least, believe this to be true. I'm concerned with whether or not this is livable. So, let's see whether it is or not. And so our answer, if well, it's not up there anymore, but, and that's okay. Um, our answer really breaks down very easily into three parts. Number one, that God created all things. Number two, all God created was good. And number three, everything flourished under his loving rule. Sounds like a sermon to me, so let's get started. Okay. So first of all, God created all things. Here's what I want to do. I want to take those three points briefly as I can and then um, make as many applications to how this is livable as we can. Okay, number one. God created all things. Okay, firstly, this means that if God created all things, then, therefore, the world did not create itself. Okay, so we affirm that God is the first mover, that God Almighty is primary in all things and everything we see in this world, each other, the sky, the moon, the grass, everything is derivative and therefore must live in relation to him. Secondly, it means that God owns everything by creative right. We, we live in America, we know what it means to create something and therefore it's mine. Okay. God created all things, therefore, he owns all things. There is not one square inch in all of the creation, somebody said, and I can't remember who, there's not one square inch in all the creation over which God does not say, this is mine. I created this. I own this. It belongs to me. The trees and the oceans belong to him. The hedgehogs and your neighbor belong to him. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. To him. And so, God owns everything by creative right. But thirdly, that means if God created all things, then all of this that exists does not exist by chance. Oh, no. If everything exists because of a roll of the dice, then all of it means nothing. And we are, come on, we are meaning-hungry creatures, If it's just a roll of the dice, it means nothing. And somebody will object and say, yeah, just because you want meaning doesn't mean that there is such a thing. Just because most of the people in all of the world, in all the history of the world, want life to mean something, it doesn't mean that it actually exists. I would answer, true. And just because a man is hungry doesn't mean that food exists. But... Isn't the probability greater that if the whole humanity experiences hunger, that such a substance probably exists? And so, if God created all things, that means it means something. We long for meaning because it is written into the fabric of all that exists. And so, when we look at the hummingbird and our neighbors and a newborn baby the Atlantic Ocean, and pine trees, we must begin with this confession. God made this. God made this. That's where we begin our confession. Okay, secondly, not only did God create all things, but all that God created is good. It is good. Now, that's not a given you understand, it's not a given that we would all agree that this is good, um, because if everything is all by chance, then all that exists is neither good nor bad. It just is, and so if we see the Rocky Mountains and it, and it provokes wonder in us, it ought not. Our, our perception needs to be corrected by the fact that everything is meaningless, right? Okay, so um, it's simply a defect. Now, um, also, if you go to the creation myths, say of the Greeks, and we've said this many times here, um, you'll know that the Greeks looked at the creation, looked at the physical world, the thing you taste and touch and see and smell, and they said, this is bad. Matter, the body, these are just prison houses for the spirit, for the soul, for the eternal. And so creation is not meant to be enjoyed, but to be escaped. So for them, creation was bad. For the, the chance folks, creation just, or nature, more to the point, just is. But we affirm in this doctrine and in Genesis 1 that it is very good. God saw, he observed all that he had made, and he said, Very good. This is very, very good. Now, what does it mean that the creation is good? Well, the answer is that God has stuffed full all that he has made with his own goodness. So the creation witnesses to the goodness of the creator. Okay, then what does it mean that God is good? An excellent question. I have an answer for you. Um, and the best answer I've ever come across comes from a little book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And he says that the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill towards men. He is tender hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude towards all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. All of that, he is stuffed into the creation. Now, if you go home and spend a couple hours reading uh, a little treatise by Jonathan Edwards, which I assume you won't, but if you did... little treatise by Jonathan Edwards called The End for Which God Created the World, he says that the whole creation, the end for which God created it, he he takes the text, Psalm 19.1, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And of course, glory is the essence of someone's character. So he takes that text and he says the end for which, the purpose for which God created The world is to put his own happiness on display. God is the happiest of all beings. Nothing contradicts his will, right? So he is the happiest of all beings, and he overflowed into the created order so that his rapture would be evident in the things that we see. Not only that, not only that, it means that. When we see, we're not merely looking at a trout stream or a cumulus cloud. We're looking at the happiness of God. We're not merely enjoying creation. We are invited to participate in the happiness of God. Wow. <laughs> you feel this? This is not marvelous. Okay. So... We all know this. We all know this by instinct. Even if you don't go read Jonathan Edwards, we know that that when we see the creation, we observe it, we are participating in the happiness of God. When a man sees his wife coming down the aisle, as will happen tonight, you know you get that kick in your diaphragm that says, oh, this is good is very good. When, when you are hiking and you come on a trail and unexpectedly the trees open up and you see a vista below in the valley, there's something that happens that says, oh, this is so good. This is very, very good. Why? It's because God says, enter my happiness. Here it is. Enter and enjoy my happiness. Okay, so God created all things, and he created all things good. Now, I'm going to delay the third point for a few minutes, and I want to try to make some application here, Um, because this doctrine has fallen on hard times. The doctrine of creation is either, as I said, reduced completely to battling with Darwinians, or is reduced completely to our environmental task and all this sort of thing, which is great. Again, both great things, but, but it's so much more than that. It's so much more, okay? It's not for our heads, it's for our hearts and our behaviors and also for our heads. Uh, God even says in Deuteronomy 29, all the things that I've revealed, I've revealed that you may do them. Okay, so how do you do the doctrine of creation? Well. I bet there's a million ways, but I know of a few here. So number one, creation invites us into wonder. Creation invites us into wonder. Jesus says, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And what is more evident about a child than his sense of wonder? When, when Job, when God wants to silence Job and all of his questions, he brings forth creation, and he says, look at all this, look at the deer, look at the goat, look at the eagle, look at all of this, did you do this? To which Job merely bows his head in wonder and repentance. So so creation invites us into wonder, and I think the symptom of, um, we can see a symptom of a sickness here, and the sickness is that we... <laughs> we're adults. If if I was preaching this to a room full of kids, I wouldn't even have to say this. But when we grow up, we become very important people with very important things to do, very important schedules. Oh, you're so busy. I'm sorry. We become so important that we forget what this world is. We forget what God has done on our behalf. And I think the primary symptom of the fact that we're taking ourselves too seriously is a heart that takes for granted. A heart that takes for granted. So a child, as you know, takes nothing for granted. My two-year-old, he's almost two, his name is Gus, and we were over at uh, Morgan Chalk's neighborhood the other day, and there was a little creek. There's nothing in it. I mean, it's very small, but he would pick up a rock, and he would throw it in there. He'd pick up one thing God created, throw it into another thing God created, and as soon as the rock met the water, it splashed, and he went, oh! It was rapture, he loved it. And then he would do it again, oh, it was, it was unbelievable. And he kept doing it, and then it wasn't enough to throw a rock in the water, he had to throw himself in the water, and, and it, was, it was amazing, it was amazing. So in his little, in, in, if, if I could translate what he's saying, he would, he, he doesn't, he doesn't delight, in the creek because he has taken it in, in the rock and the cr- He doesn't, he's taken it in and contemplated and thought about it. He is just ecstatic that it's there, that it exists and that he can take one thing and throw it to the other and a splash happens. He's full of wonder and if I could translate that little squeal, I would say, he's saying what the psalmist is saying, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in my sight. So I, I would invite us to take up those words. It, everything we see, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in my sight. Now, um, why, why did God pack this earth with so much abundance? <clears throat> he could have just made all of this for mere survival, Okay, it could have been one plant that met all of our nutritional needs. And it could have been dull and gray and, you know, um, not very tasty. He could have packed the world full of oxygen that didn't require photosynthesis and the beauty and the grandeur of trees to make it work. He could have made each of us indistinguishable from the other. So why... Why not mere survival? The answer, of course, is that we've already seen it. Psalm 19:1. Creation, the heavens, declare the glory of God. A milk toast earth will not do because he is interested in putting his own glory, his goodness, his image, his character on display so that his children would be delighted. Okay. Now, the more we grow up, the more serious we become, and therefore, we need to come back into wonder. And the only way I know to recapture wonder is through thanksgiving. Um, To look at everything, as I said. Say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I've said this before, that the Apostle Paul, when you read his letters, thanksgiving is essentially synonymous with being a Christian. Because all is of grace. Therefore, all is gift. Therefore, the only appropriate response is, thank you. G.K. Chesterton I, and has said it the absolute best when it comes to thanksgiving. He says two things. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. <laughs> and... I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Okay, so creation invites us into wonder. Now that, one, that application was about surprise, allowing ourselves to be surprised and delighted and dazzled by what God has made. Secondly, creation preaches to those who have ears to hear. So we talked about surprise, here is the place where we are deliberate with the created order, where we take it in. Okay, Jesus, Jesus actually commanded us to do this. He said, consider the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. Like he, said, he said this because he wants us to see that there are a myriad of messages from him to us in the created order. The birds show us that God cares even for the birds. They don't have a job with a 401k and excellent health insurance. They, they just fly around and they find food because God feeds them. How much more will he not feed you? He says, look at the lilies of the field. It was not strictly necessary that a lily be so beautiful that a lily be so delightful. But he made it that way. The, the excessive abundance of beauty, he said, I want that flower to show it. And he says, don't you know that your father who dresses even the lilies, which, which could in a moment be stepped on, eaten, whatever, if he, if he cares and dresses that lily, will he not dress you in the same way you are far more important to him. So, I mean, this this could be for anything that is created. When I look into the night sky, I find myself moving towards repentance for believing that my story, my life, my problems are at the center of all things. We naturally think that, or at least people like me do. And, and I repent because, wow, this is there is a larger thing happening here than me. When you sweep the dust, like I did in my garage yesterday, and it's curling up through the light that's coming in through the garage windows, it, it says to me, if I'm hearing, you're made of this. And you'll return to this. Why are you so arrogant? Why are you so proud? Look at all you and your accomplishments. Dust. Dust. Okay, so the creation preaches to us. Number three, creation also bolsters faith. So we said, although I haven't mentioned it yet, in the question and in the answer, that God created all things by his powerful word. By his powerful word. That means God did not strain and struggle to create these things. He said it with a word. How much effort does it take you to say a word? None. None. And, and he created everything that exists by saying it. That witnesses to his power. How powerful must, must this being be if he could create all things with a word? And that means what we, when we take that into our into our minds and into our hearts, it preaches to us and says, okay, if God could do all that in my life, in your life, in our life, what could God not do? That's what the doctrine of creation tells us. What could he not do? I mean, could he not take, gather up all of the storms of your life, walk upon the waters and quench it with a word? and everything is calm. Could he not do that? Yes. Then fly, as the Puritans would say, fly to his throne and ask him for it. Calm the storm. You created all of this with a word. Can you not calm the storms in my own life? Now I don't even have to voice the objection, do I? He doesn't. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. And all I know to say is <clears throat> that if, um, if that's an objection for you, the only resting place that we have available to us is his goodness. If he does not calm the storm, then it must be that he sees fit for us to remain in the waves. I don't know why, but all I know is He's good. He's good. And his goodness is not an abstraction that we have to kind of put into the mind and massage and try to figure out until, you know, all the endorphins release. And it's like, oh, now I feel it. No, it's not. We have an eternal monument to his goodness in the crucified Jesus Christ. God gave his only son, poured out his blood, broke his body, turned away from him so that his enemies, us, could become his sons and daughters. If that is not an eternal testament to his goodness, I don't know what is. He has been doing you good from before the foundation of the world. So, yes, he is powerful. Come to him and ask, for him to still the storm with his powerful word. All right, then fourthly, and finally for these applications, creation begets hope. Now, for astute observers, I'm sure you noticed that it said in the answer, everything flourished under his loving rule. It's past tense. There was a day when everything flourished under his loving rule. But I don't have to tell you that today is not that day. Today, all is not well in the world. If it flourished at one point under his loving rule, it does so no longer. I mean, we know what this life is like. We understand pain and division and strife and unfulfilled longing and death, and sickness, and suffering, and disease. We know this. It is not well. But listen to me. This is what the doctrine tells us. This is not the way it was supposed to be. There was a point in this world where everything flourished under the loving rule of God. There was a day when there was no futility in our work. There was a day when there was no struggle to believe that God cared and desired our company because he would come visit in the cool of the day. There was a day where no marriage would break apart because everything God joined together would never be rent asunder. But today is not that day. And this is not the way it was supposed to be. And if we haven't been like Jeremiah, sitting in the rubble of Jerusalem as it's burning and weeping our eyes out, then we haven't taken the fallenness of this creation seriously enough. See, we all inherited ruin from our first father, Adam. We inherited destruction and disease and pain. But the scripture says, that there was a second Adam and his name of course is Jesus Christ. This is in Romans. And it said that when the second Adam came, he was the representative of humanity just like the first Adam was except the second Adam did not listen to the serpent. The second Adam said, get behind me, Satan. And he triumphed over the devil And he lived with uprightness and righteousness. And there was a voice behind him saying, this is the way, walk in it. And at every moment, he walked in it. But we all know there was a tragic end to this story. He was condemned by a corrupt court. And he was crucified. And if you could see Jesus with me right now, see him with his bleeding wounds, His disjointed shoulders, the pain of suffocation, then you'll see everything that has gone wrong with creation embodied in our Lord. It's right there for us to see. But the good news is, three days later, he rose from the dead, never to die again. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus is the first fruits of another resurrection. The first fruits, of course, are those that first part of the harvest, the first part of the crops that tells you the harvest is coming. This one bloomed, the rest will surely bloom. And so we, we had it in a song. I don't know if you noticed it, but it says, if we are united in a death, if we are united in death with him, we will certainly be united in resurrection with him. And so there will be a day when God will remake everything. And, and to the degree that um, we could say with integrity now that everything flourished under his loving rule we also hold on to the hope that everything shall again flourish under his loving rule. Because it is, promise. it is his promise, and his promises do not fail. Now, Romans 8 has this marvelous little section on the new creation, and it says that the creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, And why is it groaning? It's groaning because it longs to see the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God, be revealed in their glory. All right, let's not overthink this one here. The most obvious thing about childbirth is that there's a a child inside of a womb and that child emerges and comes out. And now there's no longer a child in the womb. That's the most obvious thing about childbirth. And it says that the earth is groaning in the pains of childbirth so that the sons of glory, the, the sons and daughters of, um, did I say glory? It's a glory? Glory will be revealed. The most obvious thing about this passage is that the earth was never meant to be a repository of the dead. For, for years and years and generations and generations, we've been putting our dead in the ground. And the earth, it's almost like it's convulsing saying, this is not right. Here is the image of God meant to rule and subdue this creation. And here he and she are being placed into the earth, dead. And so it says that one day creation will bring forth the resurrected sons and daughters of God and will rejoice Because finally, the birth has occurred. Everything flourished under his loving rule, but everything shall again flourish under his loving rule. Now, there is, in Isaiah, a marvelous passage. And then we have this um, witness to in Revelation also. The marriage supper of the Lamb. A feast of well-aged wine, of food full of marrow and richness. And so I would say, listen, okay, in this new creation, what we have here is the image of a feast, and we will all gather together. And you know what it says about that feast. It says that in in that day, there will be no more suffering In that new creation, there will be no more weeping. In that new creation, there will be no more death. And do you know what remains? Only laughter remains. Now, I don't mean flippancy. I don't mean crass joking, I mean it's, it's, it's the kind of laughter, and I, uh, God help all of us, I hope we've all experienced this at least once in our lives, it's that kind of laughter that sees the ragged and cut and frayed strands of our suffering and our life here on earth all of the sudden made into something beautiful and delightful, and we see it and the, the consummation of our joy at seeing the redemption of God is to laugh. I hope you've experienced this because when there is no more suffering, when there is no more sorrow, all that remains is laughter. He will make all things new. Now, this table is a sign of our future joy and that future meal. These these elements represent the only garments with which we can enter that feast, namely repentance and the righteousness of Christ. We come to this table not to satisfy our hunger, but to intensify it. For every week we come and we knock on the door of eternity and say, Lord Jesus, come, bring us into the feast. And so far, every week, he said, not just yet. Yet. There is more redemptive work to do in this creation. And I must accomplish it. So keep tasting. Keep longing. Because there will come a day when everything we look at will erupt in that great confession. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in my sight. This Brothers and sisters of God, this is the Lord's doing. And as you come, may it be marvelous in your sight. Let's pray. Father, I I barely know what to say. You have been good to us today, and we thank you for nourishing our minds and our bodies and our souls with the truth of your words, and I pray that as we all come to the table now, that you would nourish our hearts with a real sense of your goodness and your grace and your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. All God's children are invited to this table. It's a table of your nourishment. It's a table of tasting the coming feast. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe that he died for your sins, then what are you waiting for? Today is the day of your salvation. Repent and come and join us at the table. But if not, then you can remain seated and think on these things. You are invited.